welcome to the Hot Key Podcast. My name is Isabel Taylor and I am your host. This July's podcast is all about fantasy and we have a wonderful panel discussion on the adaptation of fairy tales in fantasy books with Hot Key authors Alexandra Christo, Intasar Kanani and Catherine and Elizabeth Kaur. We also have the wonderful Carla Hutchinson speaking to you a little bit about her job as an editor at Hockey Books and some of the titles she has coming up. And we have the King of Fantasy himself, Garth Nix, to speak to you a little bit about the Old Kingdom. And this month our audiobook extract is from the thrilling Fae Fantasy Finale to the Folk of the Air series, The Queen of Nothing by Holly Black. We are very excited about this month's panel who will be discussing the role of adaptations of fairy tales in the fantasy genre. Joining us is the wonderful Alexandra Christo, author of To Kill a Kingdom, which was inspired by The Little Mermaid Tale. We also have Intasar Kanani here to talk to us a little bit about Thorn, which is based on the Brothers Grimm fairy tale The Goose Girl. And finally, last but not least, the Core sisters, Catherine and Elizabeth Core, co-authors of A Throne of Swans, will be speaking about its links to the Swan Maiden tale and Swan Lake. So yeah, should we just start off with introductions, let everyone know who we are, what we're doing... Why they should care. <laughs> okay, Alexandra, you take it from the top. Okay, I'm going to be the one that's going first. Oh, gosh. All right, so um, my name is Alexandra Christo, and I'm the author of To Kill a Kingdom, which is a Little Mermaid retelling, essentially, but kind of a little darker, and it's about an evil siren who quite literally rips out and collects the hearts of princes, and when she's cursed into humanity by the Sea Queen, who's also her mother, Ish. Um, She has to team up with the pirate prince who hunts her kind and together they have to save the world. All the while, he doesn't realise her identity and doesn't know that she's trying to kill him. That's me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who wants to go next? Okay, Intasar, do you want to go? Yeah, my name is Intasar and uh, last name's Kanani and I wrote just recently a a retelling of the Goose Girl called Thorn. And um, the Goose Girl is this kind of odd fairy tale, but essentially a princess is on her way to meet the man she's going to marry. They've never met. And along the way, she's betrayed by her companion and she's replaced. And she spends a whole bunch of time in the original fairy tale working happily as a Goose Girl and then eventually, very strangely, wins her place back. And it was a, it's a very odd fairy tale. And one of the reasons I picked it is because I wanted to figure out why you would walk away from uh, power and privilege um, and happily uh, engage in a life of manual labor and what would bring you back after that. So it's a, it's a, it's a curious story. Ooh, I like the sound of that. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, who's next? Who's next? Should we go? I'm Elizabeth Core, and I co-write with my sister, Catherine. So hello, Kate. Hi, I'm here as well. <laughs> Our most recent book is A Throne of Swans, which is a sort of um, loose, loosely based on um, Swan Lake with a smidge of Hamlet and a hint of Game of Thrones. That's how we like to describe it anyway. Just sprinkled in. Yes. It's like a recipe, yeah. isn't it, for fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> so um, Swan Lake is, so it's Kate here again. So Swan Lake is the ballet, obviously, which was inspired by the Swan Maiden fairy tale. There's a whole collection of them, I think. So the main theme is is the girl turning into a swan. Obviously, in the ballet, it's a, a curse, but we wanted to explore it from the point of view of it being a gift. So the, the kingdom that these people live in, the nobles can all turn into birds that represent their ancestral family. So they're huge birds, you know, so seriously powerful. And Adwin, who's our hero, it was based on Adil, the uh, black swan in the um, ballet. So she goes to the court of her uncle to try and find out what happened to her mother who was murdered. And she's also concealing the secret that she can't actually transform. And so she's bent on revenge and learns about the cost of revenge and uncovers all of this sort of other stuff that's going on and has to save the world as they tend to have to do in fairy tales so <laughs> so we very much all seem to have gone down the route of a much darker version of the fairy tale and also yes, with yeah. a very strong oh, woman yes. at the center which, yes i mean and since we're all women kind of yeah that's obviously the character we want to see but it is interesting isn't it because those stories traditionally those fairy tales do revolve around women but mm. those women never actually have agency in their own stories the story's always about them 
but yes. they never do anything do they they're always mm-hmm. just kind of standing there <laughs> yeah so accurate <laughs> exactly and we've all chosen to do a different version of that so i think the um, interesting thing about the fairy tales is the um obviously the cinderella characters usually don't have the agency but the villains quite often are powerful women who do have agency so it's the wicked stepmother or mm-hmm. the wicked queen or the evil fairy so i think that's where you know we're all looking at these from with this darker perspective this darker undercurrent and i wonder if that that's where it comes from that that often the the women who have the real power here are the villains you know they're the ones who are standing out against the men who traditionally have these power roles you know that they want to take the kingdom or they want to seize power for themselves so it kind of I think the stories that we're telling play into that older fairy tale narrative in that way Mm. Well, I think we also possibly have kind of a a more feminist, modern perspective on this, which is that whatever our girls are doing, for example, in Thorn, Illyra's happily walking away from her her life of royalty, it's because it's been a life essentially of abuse. And when she walks away, it's like you said, it's not a curse, it's a blessing. And she's making a new life for herself, and it's awesome. But there's a slight problem that there's an evil sorceress, and um, the prince is probably going to pay for it with his life. Um, And so, you know, it is about agency. It is about deciding whether or not you're going to save um, the kingdom or, you know, the people that you meet on a daily basis. Are you going to fight for them or not? Mm. Um, And I think those are issues that young women deal with on a daily basis, uh, in um, in our world, yeah, exactly, and it's like it's their choice to save the world. That thing's not something that's thrust upon them. Like you said, they get to make decisions. Shall mm. I do this? Shall I not? And they get to have their own motives for it and their own reasons. I know um, with Lyra in, in My Mermaid Returning to Kill the Kingdom, she wants to be queen. She wants to be ruler, and then she has this curse thrust upon her, and she's told she must do this to break it. And instead, she's like, "Well, actually, no. <laughs> I'm going to do this instead. You want me to kill the prince yes. so that I can help you rule, mm. but instead." I'm going to do it and steal the magic for myself. And along the way, she learns about humanity and she learns how to be better and she kind of grows and becomes an adult. It's that initial thing of she's making her own decisions, she's making her own choices and she's not apologetic for it because I feel like a lot of the times when women are determined and ambitious in Mm -hmm. stories, um, particularly in contemporary, but it, it of course leaks into fantasy, they have to feel bad for it or they're painted as the villain or it's something that's frowned upon that they should have like a nobler cause and a nobler reasoning mm. they can't just mm. want something because they want what's best for themselves and mm. it's interesting to explore yeah. that. i think it goes back to what you said about kate about villains how villains are so interesting because they have those own internal mm. drives and those mm. internal motives and they want to do something for themselves and that selfishness sometimes can be quite nice to have someone not always consider other people and to actually think about themselves yes. a little bit more well it's real because <laughs> Yeah, exactly, because not everyone considers the world in every action they make. They do think, well, hang on, I want to do this because I want to do it. Mm -hmm. I think that's more traditionally male characteristic, or what was thought to be a more male characteristic. So women aren't supposed to display those same same desires and wants to be just to be ambitious for the sake of being ambitious and doing something because you just want to do it. They they have they're supposed to be Mm -hmm. being maternal Mm -hmm. and thinking of Mm -hmm. the wider good and all the rest of it. Yeah, and fantasy. Fantasy gives us a unique yes. way to explore that without it coming across as so blatant because you're very, you're a lot more forgiving of fantasy characters, right? Like if someone kills someone in a fantasy book, you're like, yeah, but yeah, it's fine. Like... In a contemporary, you'll yeah. be a bit more judgmental. But that kind of fantasy, it allows you to explore yeah. it more and to go a bit deeper with the characters. Well, and also fantasy generally lets you, it's a framework outside of this world, right? So you can ask big questions. And especially in young adult mm-hmm. literature, people are, you know, young people are asking very serious questions about authority and social mores and morality and all these other things. And um, in, in fantasy and any kind of world, we have a secondary world. You can really go mm-hmm. to town um, with those questions and you can question things that if we put it in a contemporary context, like, A, you're not going to go around killing as many people. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> but B, people will not come along with you for the ride when you question certain kinds of authority. They're not going to come along with you when you question certain kinds of ways of doing things because mm-hmm. it's too close to home. 
But when you do it in a fantasy setting... You can kind of ease them into it, right? They'll come with you because it's not real. <laughs> Only when they close the book, it's wonderfully subversively still with them, right? You walk away from a book, it's still in your head. It changes your mindset. Even if you're talking about something like elves and witches and whatever, if you, yeah. if you talk about real-world issues mm-hmm. and apply it to those characters, the reader's mm-hmm. more likely to gradually be eased into it. And like you said, they'll take that away and hopefully apply it in the real world. Well, as long as, it, as, long as you're writing responsibly. Yeah, no, exactly. In, in a good way. But that's the thing about responsibly it seems like a lot of writers nowadays us included are writing responsibly in regards to we're showing that people are standing up for Mm. things in their fantasy worlds like these people when there's a fight it's a fight for something big right it's a fight for like the rights of a certain people within the Mm. kingdom a certain Mm. magical Mm. creature or it's the rights Mm -hmm. for freedom for people and we in young adult especially have these young characters who are fighting for that and like you said they're not just, um, they're, they're asking these important questions, but not only that, but they're actually making that change. They're changing the world. And we're mm-hmm. seeing that so mm-hmm. often in our mm-hmm. real world. It's quite incredible as a young adult author to actually get to the end of that story and, and see it come into fruition. Yeah, I think that's, that's yeah. very true. And it's definitely what we wanted to do. And I think the part of the excitement of seeing the character start off and then step into this wider world, which they tend to do in fantasy, you know, they learn something about the world they're in that they didn't know already. And we wanted to show mm-hmm. the, um, particularly in the world that we developed, the distinction between the nobles who could fly and the people there who can't fly and even damaged by the touch of a noble. So they're completely an underclass. Um, And to see the main character becoming aware of that sort of wider scenario and the injustices in the society and then seeing how that might play into her decisions around what she wants as an individual and what she needs to do to respond to that injustice, I think is a really... It's interesting to write and I think it's really interesting for people to read as well. Mm. Do you think that kind of presented any problems like when you were writing to get that message through? Or what problems did you come across? Because like, like we've been talking about, we feel like we've kind of got a responsibility mm. to portray these huge issues and it's a very sensitive thing we do need to be careful and responsible Mm. as we've said and I'm wondering did that present us with any challenges or did we have any other challenges just in general while writing these fairy tales? I think with making sure that the characters are all properly developed so Lecha who's Adrian's best friend and he's one of the flightless to make sure that she's a really fully rounded character and has her own desires and conflicts within herself rather than just presenting in a sort of amorphous, you know, oh, these are the underclass and I've got to save them, but without ever really engaging mm-hmm. with them as, indi- as individuals, if that makes sense. Definitely, definitely. Yeah, I think for for me, there were, there were a couple of uh, challenges. I mean, one was Alira, my, my main character. She comes from a history of abuse and I was sick and tired of writing, reading these stories where, you know, someone has suffered some level of abuse or trauma and they're going along and the you know life's terrible and then they just you know decide they're going to be over Mm. it and they kind Mm. of snap their fingers metaphorically and they're all better and they go on with their lives and living their their best life it's ridiculous you know and it does a disservice to all of us who are companions or friends to people who have been through that Mm. kind of trauma because we expect them to you know just okay stop you've had enough time to deal with this and now you should be over it so was that thing like when you're depressed someone says oh just smile that's not how it works you know, and the same no, with no. it doesn't to people who have dealt with abuse. If they look around and go, "Well, every fictional character I meet can just get over it. How come I can't?" and and that's yeah. it's it's so yeah. um, so troubling. Such so, um, literally, the majority of this story, um, in one aspect, is about Alira learning to come to terms with and cope with. Um, a history of abuse and it, and it, it is it's not a straightforward path and it's one that she has to actively consciously fight her way mm-hmm. forward and through and that was a very challenging thing to write I don't actually myself ex- haven't experienced abuse so um, there was a lot of research and a lot yeah. of coming to understand how to deal with this um, and, and it's harrowing you know it's a really difficult thing mm-hmm. so that was really um, really interesting aspect of writing the story um, and the other thing that um, I struggled with was that it's also a story about justice and mercy. Um, and at what point does justice become cruelty? Mm. You know, and and when when what what differentiates di- justice from vengeance? If you were the one deciding the sentence, yeah, you know? such good questions. Uh, yeah, where do yeah. we draw the line? Yeah, where do we draw the line between punishing our enemies and yes. becoming our becoming enemies? Our enemies, exactly. And in fact, I have a conversation with the villain at one point where they literally are looking at that. What do I become if I do this? Yes. Do I become you? Yeah. 
You know, it's a challenge to write a story that doesn't necessarily give all the answers. And, and I think that's, you know, we go back to, we talk about people walking away from our stories with food for thought is, you know, I, I don't answer mm. all the questions I ask. And that's partly because I believe we each have to figure it out for ourselves. <laughs> well, that's part of life, right? Not yeah. everything's tied up in a pretty little boat. Yeah. You don't kind of have something happen to you. And then it's like, well, this is the happy ever after. And I know, especially at fairy tales, we always get that happily ever oh. after. But to do a retelling... <laughs> And not give that or give kind of, maybe the characters have a sense of mm, happiness, mm. but it's not complete and you know there's still more to go on their journey. I think that's important. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as well, and so that you mentioned abuse. Mm-hmm. That's something that I cover as well in, in my story. Uh, my character, Lyra, she's grown up with her mother always telling her this is how she should act, this is how she should be. And she, if she ever kind of defers from that, she's punished physically and mentally and kind of some in one instance someone that she loves is punished as well mm. and it's only when she escapes that that she actually realizes that it was wrong mm-hmm. because that mm. was a normal for her that was something that she grew up thinking was expected and that was just how things were and it's when she's separated from her mother and she's surrounded with these new people this kind of found family that she learns things can be different and so she mm. herself learns to be different and learns how her mm. actions have consequences and although at the end things do reach a resolution of sorts that's never something that's going to leave her. She's still going to always be learning and always be sorting through those emotions and how they have affected her mm. later in life. So common, f- it's interesting that that thread has kind of run through all of our books that you have these has, such yeah. real issues. Yeah. yeah, I think the darkness of the characters, I think, comes through there as well. Our main character, her main driver initially, is she just wants revenge. She wants to find the people who have murdered her mother and she wants to murder them right back, you know. So it's she's very got this very selfish thing going on. <laughs> Holding a mirror up to that, that darkness that we all have within us, I guess, and saying, well, how far are you willing to go? You know, what point do you stop? Um which are also really interesting yeah. questions. Also, mm-hmm. it's a bit of a challenge when writing our heroines to make sure that not only are they aspirational, but they're also realistic. Um, because, you know, our heroines have mm-hmm. tended to be quite young girls have been thrust into these, you know, very challenging situations, like inheriting a curse or inheriting a kingdom. And then they have to, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of get them to develop this own sense of agency whilst also portraying them mm-hmm. as a 17, 18-year-old girl. Um, because mm-hmm. a lot of... Yeah, we want to kind of show... Yeah, because a lot of people haven't really found who they are, have no sense of who they are by 16 or 17. And to go into this kick-ass kind of Buffy heroine, (laughs) I think you have to be careful. (laughs) I know, I love Buffy. I really want to be Buffy, but I think you have to... Yeah, I think Mary was 16. I can't remember now. 16 when she first started her journey, The Witch's Kiss. And you want to make them relatable. I think that's sometimes quite hard. Yeah. I want to show the audience that even though they might not be kind Mm. of mythical princesses, there's still a way to... You use that Mm. fantasy Mm. world to help them deal with their real issues and say, okay, you're not a princess, (laughs) but you're still going through this and you can still deal with it. Like, basically, we're all self-help gurus, not just fantasy (laughs) authors. I mean, that's what I want to say. On that note... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Quick, guys, let's finish up. (laughs) Before I start giving advice on like proper knife <laughs> techniques and stuff. Um, well, I just wanted to say thank you to Hotkey for having us all. And maybe if we can go around and yes, yeah, um, yeah. I'll share yeah. where we can be found online. Yeah, and and what we're working on next. Yeah, right? Steamy yeah. books. Keep following yeah. us. If you think we're interesting, read our books. <laughs> Liz and I are both on uh, Twitter and Instagram. So I am at Catherine Core on Twitter and at Catherine Core Writes on Instagram. And our next book, Throne of Swans, is actually part one of a duology. So the follow-up, which is A Crown of Talons, is coming out in um, January, actually. And we've seen the cover and it's amazing, um, as you'd expect from Hotkey. And uh, yeah, we're very excited for everybody to continue um, Radwin's exciting journey into darkness. Oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. <laughs> um, I'm on Liz Corwrights on Amazon. Oh, Amazon? Instagram, sorry, and Twitter. Twitter, not Amazon, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, she mentioned sorry. the um, yeah, and we're also working on another YA with a completely different setting. But shh, you're not, 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 I'm not talking about that. But I'm just <laughs> top secret. I'm That's definitely going to get I'm cut out now. That we're writing on another YA, <laughs> and we're looking at a couple of stories for some younger readers as well. Can I say that? Oh, <laughs> I suppose, baby. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I, we will allow it. <laughs> I'm on Books by Intasar at Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and also my website. And I'm working on a companion duology to Thorn um, featuring a new heroine 
Um, and she's taking up one of the unfinished questions in the story, which is what happens to the children who keep disappearing from the streets of the city oh, and the country. Right. When's that, that out? Is that is out uh, this coming March. Oh, yeah. exciting. Oh, wow. Thank you. Yes, next year. Oh, God. Okay, that sounds so cool. So for me, on social media, I've kind of forgotten even my name. <laughs> <laughs> Instagram, I am Alexandra Christo Wright. And on Twitter, I am Ali Christo. And then my website is alexandrachristo.com. Um, right now I am working on the second part, the second book in my geology, um, Into the Crooked Place. The second book is called City of Spells and is due out February 2021. And I'm just kind of working on wrapping that up. And I've seen the cover as well from Hotkey. And oh my God, it's so pretty. There's like red and gold. And I don't know how much they're going to edit out of me describing it. So I'll stop there. <laughs> I'm working on that. And <laughs> a couple of other things to come soon. Possibly another Ooh. fairy tale retelling. But I'll keep that shturm in case my agent listens to this. As they're known to do, agents. You have to be careful, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. Well, thank you all so much. Yes, yeah, so nice to speak with you all. Thank you, guys. And thank you, Hotkey. Thank yes. you, Hotkey. Thank you to thank people you, listening. Thank you, Hotkey. I hope people enjoyed it. <laughs> it wasn't too much. <laughs> Bye-bye. I'm thrilled to now be able to introduce you to Carla Hutchinson, one of our wonderful editors here at Hockey Books, who will be speaking to you about some of the books she has coming up and the role of the editor. Hi everyone, my name's Carla Hutchinson and I'm the assistant editor at Hockey Books and Piccadilly Press and I'm so happy to be joining you today on the Hockey Podcast. A lot of my time consists of reading lots of manuscripts, doing line edits and doing illustration and cover briefs. I'm also really lucky to work collaboratively with other teams like the marketing and PR teams when we're getting pictures together and designing proofs and liaising with the audio team to choose narrators and working with the digital team on ebook editions. It's also such a fulfilling role because I get to create lovely relationships with authors. I often think of authors handing their book babies over to us so we have a massive responsibility to make sure we care for it and give it the best life possible. It's such a nice feeling to create a special relationship with authors and understand their characters and be invited into the worlds they've built in their books. It's also a magical feeling when you get a manuscript that you know readers will absolutely love and relate to and will want to have it for the rest of their lives. I'm the editor of A Phoenix First Must Burn by Patrice Caldwell, Ray Bearer by Jordan Ifueko and Witches Steeps in Gold by Shannon Smart and work on titles including With the Fire on High and Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo and How It All Blew Up by Arvin Armadi. Clap When You Land by Elizabeth Acevedo recently published in May this year and it tells the story of Camino and Yahira, two sisters who didn't know they were related but only found out about each other once their father died in a plane crash to the Dominican Republic. It's such a powerful story told in verse about life, loss and forgiveness and being able to continue your life and keep your dreams alive even in the face of loss and how strong family connections and family love is. Please do check it out if you haven't read it already. Elizabeth is such a great writer and she tells the story so well and so powerfully and I think it's the perfect book for all YA readers. Right now we're gearing up for the publication of Ray Bearer on August the 18th so I'm working on getting that together and finishing the design of the exclusive Fairy Loot edition which is so exciting. If you're a Fairy Loot subscriber or a Fairy Loot fan, you can definitely look out for this edition when it's available from the 18th of August. It's going to be such a massive book. We absolutely love it. Jordan Ifueko is a debut author. She's from America and she's Nigerian and she her story is absolutely amazing. It's lush writing, it's perfect fantasy and if you're a massive fan of YA fantasy, this is the book for you. I'm also working on Witches Steeps in Gold, the YA Caribbean inspired fantasy by debut UK writer Shannon Smart. Drawing on her Jamaican background, Shannon's debut is deadly fierce and magnetically addictive. It takes you on a thrilling journey where dangerous magic reigns supreme and betrayal lurks between every word. I often picture it as two witches, one motive and a very untrustworthy alliance. It will be publishing in April 2021. It's the first in a duology. We're getting the UK proofs ready right now, which is really exciting. So please look out for those soon. They should be ready, hopefully, in the beginning of next year, if not a little earlier. There's so many great things about my job, but a career highlight for me was acquiring Excuse Me While I Ugly Cry by debut author Joya Goffney. It tells the story of protagonist Quinn Jackson, an overly enthusiastic list maker who loses her personal journal and is blackmailed into completing a to-do list of embarrassing tasks and facing up to all her worst fears or risk having her 
journal exposed to the whole school and social media. Through facing the blackmailer's to-do list, Quinn finds the courage to change her life and change the way she's living and somehow to fall in love along the way. It's the perfect, perfect YA rom-com. And for fans who loved all the boys I've loved before and The Sun is also a star, you will absolutely love this. We can all relate to the cringeworthy moments in life and making lists to get our lives in order. But it's also such a great story about a teenage black girl's experience within a high school rom-com and her journey of identity and self-discovery. Joya has called it a gift to black girls, but it's also a gift to all rom-com lovers. It's publishing in June 2021 and we cannot wait, so please look out for that and look out for any more updates we'll have on our social media about the cover. Thank you so much for having me here on the Hockey Podcast and thank you for listening. If you have any questions about any books I spoke about, please do drop the Hockey team a message on Twitter. Thanks again. Bye. And now we have the one and only Garth Nix. A full-time writer since 2001, he has worked as a literary agent, marketing consultant, book editor, book publicist, book sales representative, bookseller and as a part-time soldier in the Australian Army Reserve. His books have appeared on the bestseller lists of the New York Times, Publishers Weekly and The Guardian and his work has been translated into 40 languages. So here he is, it's Garth Nix. Hi, I'm Garth Nix and I'm the author of many books published by Hotkey Books, but today I'm going to be particularly talking about the Old Kingdom series, which begins with Sabriel, goes through Liriel, Abhorson, Golden Hand, and the prequel Clariel. And it's great to be here on the Hotkey Podcast. So, Sabriel was first published in Australia in 1995, in the United States in 1996, and in the United Kingdom in 2002. Uh, so you'd think I would have had lots and lots of practice talking about Sabriel in particular, and it's true, but I do have to cast my mind back uh, to think about what's the what's the best way to tell you about it. And I guess Sabriel, the beginning of the Old Kingdom series, sometimes also called the Abhorson series, is about a young woman who has grown up largely in a country that is very similar to England or or Australia or America in about 1918-19, something like that. They have a kind of post-World War I level of technology, and they don't have magic, except towards the northern part of the country where it borders on the Old Kingdom, and the two are separated by a wall, uh, which I, I hasten to add uh, was actually written before Game of Thrones. I always like to, to point that out. So Sabrilla's has grown up. She's at school. Uh, in Anselstier, the country south of the wall, where there is this early 20th century technology uh, and not much magic, only in the northern fringes. But she actually comes from the Old Kingdom and she has been trained in the use of their particular magic, charter magic as it's called. And her father is a very important person in the Old Kingdom because he is the Abhorson, whose job it is to make dead things stay dead. He's a kind of anti-necromancer. His duty is to, to make the dead stay dead so they don't, they don't emerge out of death, which is possible in the Old Kingdom. Sabriel has been sent to school for her own safety, uh, but she is still being trained by her father remotely uh, by, by magic. Um, when he disappears, she has to cross the wall and try and find out what's happened to him and is drawn into a much older struggle between... Uh, forces from death that want to return to the living world and, and disrupt the natural order of things. In To a degree, the whole series is about that struggle between uh, free magic, which is a, a kind of uncontrolled but very powerful magic governed by, by passions and, and strong desires, generally selfish ones, uh, including not dying and living forever, uh, and the, the natural order of, of the living world, which is represented by, by charter magic, which establishes order for, for all things. There are lots of particular ways that magic is used uh, in Sabriel and in these, these books, which people like, uh, including the seven bells that the necromancers use and also the abhorsons use. Those are a little bit different. Um, this is one of the one of the touches that was a happy accident when I created it, but people respond uh, very well to it. 
And one of the nice things about the new editions from Hotkey, uh, the lovely paperbacks that they've done, is that they have their flapped paperbacks. They have little folding flaps, and uh, one of those flaps has the seven bells. They're illustrated, and their, their little brief descriptions are on there. That is, that's one of the nice things. It's great to have books republished, to have new editions of books, to have new covers, uh, new packages. The books themselves are beautiful physical objects, and it's always nice to have another opportunity to to connect to these stories with people who may not have seen them before, and we'll get another chance because new books uh, do get more attention, even when the new books are actually old books coming back again. Now, in terms of where I was when the, idea, the basic idea for the book came to me and so on, I really have to cast my mind back because Sabriel was written, or Sabriel, you can pronounce it either way, I always say, Sabriel, Sabriel, I flip-flop myself sometimes, it doesn't matter. Uh, you can pronounce my character names however you like. There is no one right way. So casting my mind back to writing Sabriel, it was written in the early 1990s, so we're talking a long time ago. And I'm, as with most books, there wasn't really one central big idea that propelled it. There's lots of small ideas that, that gather together until you, you reach a critical mass. And I think... Death was on my mind uh, because my grandfather was dying, the first person close to me to die. And I was thinking about what happens after you die? You know, what, what happens in terms of an afterlife? Uh, does anything happen? And for stories, of course, it's very interesting to think about what, what might happen. And so that was in my mind. And then I started thinking about people coming back from death uh, and necromancy and necromancers bringing people back from, from death and so on, which is nearly always for evil or very selfish purposes. It's for the exertion of power and so on, to, to bring the dead back to, to serve you. And then I thought it would be interesting to write a story about someone who was a kind of good necromancer or someone who used necromantic powers for good purposes. And that was, the, that was the spark that then propelled me to think about Sabriel. And in the same way that I, I do for most of my books, I didn't really know, I didn't have the big story. I just had this basic idea. So I wrote something. This is what I nearly always do. I, I write a, a prologue or a little piece of prose just to try and find my way to a main character and a setting and so on. And I wrote the prologue which is in Sabriel. I don't always use these these pieces. Um, sometimes they are the prologue, sometimes they are the first chapter, sometimes they are a sequence later in the book. Sometimes I write them only to discover something and, and that, that writing is never actually in the book. But in the case of Sabriel, it is. And I wrote the prologue, which is about Sabriel's father coming upon uh, his, his wife and his presumably dead child, who is Sabriel. And this is the first few pages of the book. I don't think it can qualify as a spoiler. And in the course of writing that prologue, I was thinking I was going to write about the abortion, about Sabriel's father. I thought that's who the book would be about. But once I'd written the prologue, I thought, actually, Sabriel is more interesting. I want to write about her. And I also wanted to, I wanted to write a book which had a young woman as, as the hero rather than a man because I, I thought that would be different. It would be a good thing to, to be different. I think some of the other influences that were then were, were playing into my mind at that time was that I was also working on a World War I story. Uh, I've got a lot of interest in military history uh, in World War I, not so much in particular because I have many areas of interest, but World War I is one of them not least because many members of my family fought in the First World War, as many Australians did, uh, and my great-great-uncle was actually killed in, in 1916, Captain John Edward Nix. And he was a writer. He was killed at the age of 26, commanding a company, uh, along with most of his men, in the way that that worked in the First World War. And I wanted to write a story drawing on some of, of his experience and on some of that history. But I actually, 
I, I wasn't able to find my way into that story. Uh, later, I wrote it as a, as a film script, even though it hasn't been made. So I had this kind of anti-necromancer. I had this First World War setting and all of those things and, and many other small ideas, as is always the case, came together for the basic story. It it's also begins as a school story and there's many influences there from P.G. Woodhouse's uh, school stories with the Smith and so on. So there's many different influences at work, um, both literary ones and historical ones. All of them came together, luckily in a good way, and uh, and helped me to write to write Sabriel. Uh, in terms of questions I'm asking in the book, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's actually a question that I can even answer. I think often authors aren't particularly aware of of what's what's driving their desire to, to tell a story. And there's many, many different things can be at play. So sometimes it's very personal, sometimes it's more abstract, sometimes it is very knowing. Um, I'm not sure what I was doing in, in, in that book other than I wanted to tell a good story. That's always my, my driving aim is to tell a good story and to write the kind of book that I would like to read myself. And I think you can't help but infuse it with some of your own philosophies and, and thoughts, um, sometimes the reverse of your own philosophies because you, you want to examine them or, or pull them apart or show them up for, for what they are. Um, so that, that, that is always at play, but I, I don't think there was any specific questions that I was, I was asking with, with the book, except, of course, there is, there is a phrase in Sabriel which many people have taken on and to the extent of of uh, getting tattoos of it and, and using it as a sort of personal quotation and so on. Uh, I have to confess, I didn't even really think about it very much when I wrote it. It just came out. And that is the, the phrase, does the walker choose the path or the path the walker? Now, that's a kind of rhetorical question for me. It's not one I think that has an answer. But for many people, it's something they like to, to think about. So maybe that, that actually sums up everything I was doing in that book. Uh, and perhaps in, in, in all my books without me even being aware of it. Was it a difficult book to write? It was difficult in parts, and that's true of all my books. I can't point to any book and say that was the most difficult book I've written, and I've, I've written many books uh, at, at this stage of, of my career. I've been doing this a long time. Uh, I can't point to any one and say that was the hardest book because they all have difficult parts and they all have parts that were easier. Uh, sometimes there are long sections that were written very much in, in, in one go and relatively effortlessly and didn't need much editing and so on. Uh, but then again, there'll be other parts which, which were much more difficult and required extensive rewriting and revision, uh, sometimes multiple attempts at getting the story right. Uh, some of my books you know, whole chapters were thrown out, rewritten, put back in. Some of them, I wasn't chucking out whole swathes of text, but I was certainly having to revise what was there many, many times. So this book, Sabriel, the other books in the, in the Alchemy series, they were all like that. So there were some hard parts, there were some easy parts. No one book was a dream. Uh, no one book was a nightmare. I think that's probably just as well. Uh, if if I ever could write a book great ease and no difficulty at all, I might hope they're all going to be like that and be profoundly disappointed. Uh, so they're all they're all work. In terms of knowing whether I've landed on something I want to turn into a story, I never actually know until I do turn it into a story. And even when I've written the story, I don't necessarily know. I know that I want to do it. Whether it will be a success is up to other people. I've written lots of short fiction as, as well as the novels, and some of them are, are more successful than others. Some have never been published because in the short story side, and one novel, because they didn't connect with, with, with people. They didn't connect with editors. They didn't connect with anyone who wanted to publish them. And given that lack of, of confidence, generally a wide range of people, because I would never give up just on a couple of rejections. Uh, rejection is part of an author's life, a writer's life, and uh, so you need to you do you do need to test things very widely. But I think when something has been rejected by numerous potential editors 
by my agents and so on. I've retired a few things here and there because they, they just didn't work. These days, of course, I could self-publish them and I have self-published a few things, but they've not been things that have, have met wide rejection. I just wanted to, to, to test the waters and see how that went. So I don't know, but I do know that I, I feel compelled to, to write it and to, to finish it uh, because if you don't finish things, you haven't got anything. Once you've finished a story, you've, you've, you've created a potential. Anything can happen. Good things can happen. And uh, it's, who knows? So you've got to finish them. But as whether they're worthwhile or not, I never really know. Uh, I, I leave it to others to, to decide. But I, you know, I, I work, I do my best to write the best thing I can. And then I also work hard to try and place it in the, in the best spot where it can, it can do well. Uh, with the help of agents and, and so on. Talking about the character or the topic that drew me into Sabriel in particular, again, I think there's a host of things at work there. I typically discover the fantasy worlds I'm creating through the story. I don't know very much at the beginning about the world or about the main character, and I discover more about both as I go along. So I guess that's one of the things that drives me is that curiosity just to discover and invent more about the world and to discover more about the character and, and, and build them up and flesh them out as well. So my driving force, I think, is, is my own desire to learn more about this story, which if it's going well and everything's working, will feel to me as if it's really happening somewhere and I'm describing it. And if I can capture that effectively, that's also, I believe, how it will feel to the reader and that's, that's what makes it work. So that's always what's pushing me forward is, is trying to, to discover the story that, that feels like it, it really does exist somewhere. Um, and sometimes you have to backtrack and fine-tune these things to, to make it feel more like it's a, it's a real story. Uh, but it's part of the fun is to try and find that core of the story and the character and then the best way to tell that to, to readers. Um, how did I carry out my research? Well, I don't really do much specific research and there's not a lot of specific research you can do into necromancy, for example. Certainly there is a lot of, there's a lot of historical information about what people have believed. In terms of practice, I don't, I don't believe necromancy is a real thing. Fortunately, uh, though I do have some readers who who seem to believe otherwise, and every now and again I I get letters or emails asking me where they can get a copy of the Book of the Dead and learn to be necromancers themselves. Uh, I always feel sorry to disabuse them of that notion. But I'm always I'm always researching in a sort of passive way. Uh, I read lots of history. I read lots about myth and legend. I read about the natural world and, and science because you never know what will be useful. Um, I also love biographies from little things that you might use in, in characters. And, and all of that is, is grist for the mill. So you're gathering small fragments of information that might prove useful in your current story or further down the track. So I'm always reading nonfiction, particularly history, particularly pertaining to myth and legend and beliefs and superstitions and so on, uh, because you, you just never know when it will it will come in handy. And, and fiction as well can also lead you to all kinds of things which might, might prove useful in your own stories. And in, in my own stories, that's certainly true, where something I've read in a novel will make me look into something further and find something that, that's useful in, in my own books as well. So I think the more you put into your head, the more you've filled the reservoir there with stuff that might be potentially useful to, to draw upon later. Is there anything special about this book? <laughs> well, all books are special. Uh, any, any book is special. Uh, the fact that it exists at all is, is quite a miracle, really. I mean, any book, uh, when you consider all the, all the work and all the things that can go wrong, and, and particularly from the writing to the publication and, and so on. So all books are special. Sabriel, I guess, is, is special in other ways as well because it's lasted a long time. Not all books manage to, to continue and, and be read 
over the years, many vanish without trace, rightly or wrongly. There is a huge amount of luck involved in, in this business and uh, in, in books in general. I think Sabriel, at this point, having been around constantly in print and in many different languages for 25 years, makes it a special book. Uh, but as I said, I think all books are special, and some books are particularly special to individual readers for reasons no one would ever guess at. That is a tremendous thing. I have, I have many, many favourite books, many books that are very special to me. They might not be as special to other people, but they're special to me because of the connection that they made when I first read them, which might have been in you know, particular times of, of my life, but particularly in childhood, of course. Your childhood books are often the most special because that's a time when they make they can make a really big impact upon you. So all books are special. I hope Sabriel and other Old Kingdom books are special to readers for their own reasons. Um, I'm not sure there's any general specialness uh, about the books, but um, as I said, all, all books are special. What's on your bedside table? What are you reading at the moment? Well, I'm reading several books at the moment. I'm reading 1, 2, 3, 4, which is about the Beatles. It's a non-fiction book, which is fascinating. I've just finished, uh, rather belatedly, because it's been, a, it's been around for quite a few years, a book called EXO, EXO, by Stephen Gould, which is the fourth book in the Jumper series about uh, some people who can teleport. The first book, Jumper, uh, is a great young adult novel about a, a teenager who develops the ability to teleport. It was made into a, a film, and Stephen Gould is, is a very good science fiction writer for young adults and, and adults. And, and I just hadn't read the fourth one for some reason, and I caught up with that recently, which I really, really liked. It's it's a very, very good young adult science fiction novel about a girl who can teleport and is fascinated by, by space. And it has a lot of really great stuff going on in, in space, uh, if you're interested in, in astronautics and, and so on. And it's and it's a good thriller, too. So uh, that's a couple of things that I'm, that I'm reading. Um, but I do have numerous other books uh, by my bedside as well some historical novels and some old childhood favourites as well I, I, I tend to read. Is there a song or soundtrack that you listen to when you're writing? I quite often listen to, to music when I'm writing, not all the time, but I do at particular moments. And when I'm looking for like a high energy to write a, a battle scene, for example, or perhaps a very active scene, I will, I will quite often sort of fire myself up with, uh, with something like you know, Led Zeppelin or you know, other, other kinds of, of rock of that, that nature. Um, but I also I listen to all, all kinds of music at, at different times. There's certain soothing music I might look for to look for some peace. Uh, there's very melancholy music sometimes I, I listen to because I'm, I'm working in a, in a melancholy or, or sad mode for some part of the book. Quite often that might be some of the more classical music. Um, music for the funeral of Queen Mary, for example, is there's a, a march from that which sort of almost makes me come to tears as soon as I start hearing it. So music is good to evoke emotion, which I then draw upon to, to use in the book, uh, because you know the transfer of emotion is is a big part of of the writing, and I, and I think if I can feel something when I'm writing then quite often that will that will transfer to the reader as well if if i've done it if i've done it right what is your favorite book or the most influential book you've ever read um there's so many there's so many books that have been enormous influences upon me uh, again particularly the ones i read growing up because that that is a very a time when you're very open to to influence i think and, of course, I'm the kind of writer I am today, largely in part because of those books I read, I read growing up. So there's a very long list of, of many, many writers who, who have influenced me, and, and quite often all of their work, not just a, a single book. But to, to give a few examples, and this is not exhaustive by any means, and for different books I'm more influenced by different people, pardon me, different people if that makes sense, so there are some very obvious ones like uh, J.R. Tolkien, Ursula Le Guin, Dinah Wynne-Jones, 
Joan Aiken, Susan Cooper, Andre Norton, Robert Heinlein. You could actually probably, you know, Lloyd Alexander, you could probably almost mention any of the significant writers of fantasy and science fiction, both for adults and children from the sort of 50s onwards. And many children's writers too were, were very important to me. Some great fantasists, um, Alan Garner is another one. Um, some of the historical novelists, Ronald Welch. Yeah, there's, there's so many, but also I'm just looking, looking across at a shelf here. Uh, lots of the classics too, um, Charles Dickens. There's a great many huge influences. And also some of some nonfiction like um, Arthur Mee's Children's Encyclopedia was a very important influence for me. I accessed many myths and legends through Arthur Mee's Encyclopedia. A children's magazine called Look and Learn was also quite significant uh, for me. So there's all kinds of, kinds of influences there. Uh, what didn't make the cut that you wish did? Well, I don't. I I don't look back on things really. I'm I'm a looking forward sort of person, and, and not necessarily in a glass half full or a glass half empty sort of way. I just I want to move on to the next thing, particularly in terms of my work. Um, so I don't look back on stories that I didn't finish or novels that didn't do as well as I'd hoped or, or whatever. I just look at the next one and think, well, I'll, I'll do better. I'll, I'll do better next time. And I'm always trying to write what's in my head in a more, in a more effective way. And when I first imagine a story, it's always really amazing. It's really incredible. And I'm, I'm excited about it and I want to tell it. And then I write it and I rewrite it and I revise it and so on. I spend sometimes a very long time trying to get that vision in my head out onto pages. And it's never as good as it is just in my, in my mind. I'm very proud of my books and my stories and you know, I'm very happy that I've done them. And I, I think they're good, but they're never quite as good as what I imagined. But I always hope that next time I will get there. I will manage to get the full realisation onto the page. Um, so far, I've never quite managed it. As I said, I am proud of everything I've done and I, I do think uh, that the things I, I've written are good. But um, there is that ideal in my mind and I, I, would, love to, I would love to reach it. But uh, why should people read my book? Well, I don't think people should, should read anything. Um, I think if you if you love fantasy adventures and you like to be taken into another world full of magic and, and exciting adventures, then you should give Sabriel a go. Uh, but otherwise, I don't, I don't think anyone should read anything. Pick the books you like. See 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 what works. Read the first few pages, and if it takes you along, that's great. And if it doesn't, you know, maybe pick up something else. Um, you could always pick up another book of mine, quite different in, in many respects. So maybe something else of mine would work. Um, I would encourage you just to start reading and, and see what happens. You never know. Um, my immediate next book is The Left-Handed Booksellers of London, which comes out September 2020. Uh, then next year, from Hot Key, there is another book in the Old Kingdom series uh, called Tercial and Eleanor. Uh, Tercial is Sabriel's father, the Abhorson, uh, and Eleanor is her mother. And this is the story of, of how they met and, and what happens after. I don't like to say much more than that and, until we get closer to, to it coming out. So that's, that's out September, October of 2021. So, yeah, those are the next, the next books from me. Um, thank you so much for having me here on the Hotkey podcast, uh, and thank you for listening. Um, if you've got any questions about Sabriel or the Old Kingdom series or, or any of my other books, uh, Twitter is probably the best way to get a response from me, and my Twitter handle is at Garth Nix, so that's G-A-R-T-H-N-I-X. Uh, I'm also on Facebook. Uh, you can find my writer page and my personal page, Garth Nix, and uh, my website is simply garthnix.com.
www.thepodcastmaker.com. Uh, it's been great talking to you and uh, happy reading. I hope you stay safe. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Hotkey Podcast. We would love it if you could rate and subscribe and spread the word to all of those YA fans out there. You can find Hotkey Books at Hotkey Books YA and at Hotkey Books Teen on Twitter and Instagram and at Hotkey Books on Facebook and YouTube. If you're a Hotkey fan, you can also subscribe to the Hotkey mailing list. All of the details about that can be found in the pinned tweet on our Twitter profile. We would love to hear any suggestions or thoughts you have on the podcast. So if you have any questions or content you would like to hear featured, please do email marketing.childrens at bonniabooks.co.uk. Our audiobook of the month is The Queen of Nothing by the Queen of Fairy herself, Holly Black. After being pronounced Queen of Fairy and then abruptly exiled by the wicked King Carden, Jude finds herself unmoored, the Queen of Nothing. She spends her time with Vivi and Oak, watching reality television and doing odd jobs. But when her twin sister Taryn shows up asking a favour, Jude jumps at the chance to return to the fairy world, even if it means facing Cardan. And the elfin king has sworn to wed a daughter of earth, whose child shall be, by cross and water hollowed, from the fairy's doom forever free. What if there be a faded day? It is far away. It is far away. Edmund Clarence Stedman, Elfin Song. Prologue. The royal astrologer, Bafin, squinted at the star chart and tried not to flinch when it seemed sure the youngest prince of Elfheim was about to be dropped on his royal head. A week after Prince Cardin's birth, and he was finally being presented to the High King. The previous five heirs had been seen immediately, still squalling in ruddy newness. But Lady Asha had barred the High King from visiting before she felt herself suitably restored from childbed. The baby was thin and wizened, silent, staring at Eldred with black eyes. He lashed his little whip-like tail with such force that his swaddle threatened to come apart. Lady Asha seemed unsure how to cradle him. Indeed, she held him as though she hoped someone might take the burden from her very soon. Tell us of his future, the High King prompted. Only a few folk were gathered to witness the presentation of the new prince. The mortal Valmorin, who was both court poet and seneschal, and two members of the Living Council, Randolin, the Minister of Keys, and Bafin. In the empty hall, the High King's words echoed. Bafin hesitated, but he could do nothing save answer. Eldred had been favored with five children before Prince Cardin, shocking fecundity among the folk, with their thin blood and few births. The stars had spoken of each little prince's and princess's faded accomplishments in poetry and song, in politics, in virtue, and even in vice. But this time what he'd seen in the stars had been entirely different. Prince Cardin will be your last-born child, the royal astrologer said. He will be the destruction of the crown and the ruination of the throne. Lady Asha sucked in a sharp breath. For the first time, she drew the child protectively closer. He squirmed in her arms. I wonder who has influenced your interpretation of the signs. Perhaps Princess Elowin had a hand in it. Or Prince Dane. Maybe it would be better if she dropped him, Bafin thought unkindly. High King Eldred ran a hand over his chin. Can nothing be done to stop this? It was a mixed blessing to have the stars supply Bafin with so many riddles and so few answers. He often wished he saw things more clearly, but not this time. He bowed his head, so he had an excuse not to meet the High King's gaze. Only out of his spilled blood can a great ruler rise, but not before what I have told you comes to pass. Eldred turned to Lady Asha and her child, the harbinger of ill luck. The baby was as silent as a stone not crying 
or cooing, tail still lashing. Take the boy away, the High King said. Rear him as you see fit. Lady Asha did not flinch. I will rear him as befits his station. He is a prince, after all, and your son. There was a brittleness in her tone, and Bathan was uncomfortably reminded that some prophecies are fulfilled by the very actions meant to prevent them. For a moment, everyone stood silent. Then Eldred nodded to Valmorin, who left the dais and returned holding a slim wooden box with a pattern of roots traced over the lid. A gift, said the High King, in recognition of your contribution to the Greenbrier line. Val Morin opened the box, revealing an exquisite necklace of heavy emeralds. Eldred lifted them and placed them over Lady Asha's head. He touched her cheek with the back of one hand. Your generosity is great, my lord, she said, somewhat mollified. The baby clutched a stone in his little fist, staring up at his father with fathomless eyes.